There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. This week features my conversation with the architect Adam Caruso, who together with Peter Sinjin established their eponymous practice in London in 1990. Adam grew up in Montreal and studied architecture at McGill University before moving to London, where he initially worked for Florian Bagel and Arab Associates. Aside from co-directing Caruso Sinjin, Adam has taught architecture at a range of schools, including the University of North London, the University of Bath, the Harvard Graduate Design School, the Academy of Architecture of Mendrisio, and the City's program at the London School of Economics. In 2011, Adam was appointed Professor of Architecture and Construction at the ETH Zurich. We spoke via Zoom back in April near the beginning of the lockdown in the UK. We talked about, among other things, the gaps that often exist between his practices built projects and the more volatile and radical art that inspires him, and the shifts in his teaching in recent years away from architectural form and physical structure towards social structures and marginal spaces and subjectivities. We also touched on the series of monographs he's co-edited with his partner Helen Thomas on lesser-known modernist architects, whose unconventional work defined alternatives to the dominant cultures of design in which they existed. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. That's very nice. <laughs> you can tell me, is that one too annoying? No, that's fine. I should be doing the same. The lighting is obviously not ideal. In my bedroom, I'm a kind of film noir silhouette, your mysterious interlocutor. So let me just, I'm going to record just the audio of this. Okay, so it should be recording. Okay. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay. I mean, I was, Helen and I were sick for like, I was sick for more than two weeks. Not badly, but with temperature. And it really felt like it was never going to end, you know. Mm. And I'd been sick before that, so I really just felt, you know, that and then dealing with all of the shit. Anyway. I was curious, actually, how you are managing it, both in practice and in teaching. Teaching is, you know, teaching is, uh, I mean, my students are rather pissed off and at the end of the tether, they feel really, it's very invasive, they find it, because everything's in their bedroom, kind of. Uh They're getting 20 emails a day from the ETH about, you know, helpful emails, but things that they normally would, that this lecture is this and this, the Zoom, da-da-da-da. Mm. 
On the other hand, we had a crit last week with guests and it was good and it was exhausting, but luckily what I'm teaching is I only did a small shift. It had a lot to do in a way it anticipated things. So um, thematically, it's really, it has a lot of relevance now. So they're just carrying on. We just changed a little bit of, you know, what the actual project they're doing is. Um, but it was actually a very, you know, so we immediately um, put up a blog and they have all their stuff on the blog and that's really good and they're sharing things. And then in the Zoom crit, yeah, they're, they're using a lot of time-based media, things like that. They're doing things that are a little bit um, subversive, you know, in terms of making their flats into public spaces and things like that and mm. recording it and <laughs> talking to their neighbors <laughs> by, with letters and things. And so it was actually a very interesting day. Um, but, you know, somebody sent me a link. Goldman Sachs has already done a study about how remote teaching could be the future and maybe we don't need so many teachers or buildings anymore. So, you know, there's, and I, I sort of felt that too, you know, the ETH is saying how we have to preserve this excellence, da 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 da, -da but, if, but of course it can't be the same as usual, you know, mm. <laughs> where, where studio students are taught two days a week, you know, in person. I mean, mm -hmm. So there's plenty of contact time, but it's always Zoom and it's a little bit, form it's like design reviews I'm finding the same, you know, it's, we're doing them, they're efficient, but they're, the form formality of them is they're frustrating. You know, they're 70% efficient at best. Hmm. I was looking through the studio Tumblr sites last night. Yeah, right. Um, so it seems like the way you've set it up is each student or each pair of students or team of students has a blog to yeah. chronicle their research. Yeah. Um, and, and it has final work on it. So that was interesting. So in the Zoom and my chat wasn't working in Zoom. So that was really annoying. But they would just put something up and then you would click on it and it would take you to a film or to an audio piece. And yeah, it was really, it, it makes it kind of more um, I don't know, not more, in a way, more collective. Mm. And we've been testing forms of crits anyways in the last year to do less conventional crits and do things that are a little bit more where a group of projects get get together and they decide how they want to discuss it. Mm. And then we're, me and the assistants are there. And so in a way, it's a way of developing those ideas. I mean, the whole crit thing is being really discussed at the ETH. I mean, not that we get rid of crits, but the, you know, the idea that the crit was handed down by God, you know, it wasn't. And uh, <laughs> it's really good at some things, but it's also not so good at things. And it's, so it's making us, yeah, exper I, I feel one can be a bit experimental and, you know, I, in the end, I don't really care what the work is like, you know. Hmm. But the students care a bit more and I guess they're a little bit annoyed with it. Hmm. So maybe it's useful to stay with uh, teaching for a minute. And sure. <laughs> not the coronavirus, though. Let's no. not talk about that. <laughs> but to talk about, um, I guess, this current studio you're leading at ETH, yeah. um, which is about worth and worthlessness. Yes. Yeah. Um, as a way of hopefully drilling 
deeper into your teaching practice um, and understanding the way that um, maybe certain attitudes have shifted over time um, about what has value in teaching and what has value in architecture. So could you, as a way of starting, I guess summarize what the studio is really about, what you mean when you're talking about worth? Well, it's, um, you know, if you, if one is trying to practice architecture uh, as more than just a business that's about making money, what are the criteria that one is um, using to to um, direct one's work? I guess that's the question. And um, I guess for a very, very long time in the practice and in the teaching, I thought that architects' primary um, the thing that we could control the most in our work were formal things. And by formal things, I mean physical and formal things. What things look like, how they're made, how those forms relate to the history and culture of architecture, how they uh, say something about the situation in which you're making the project, the physical situation, but also the social situation, all of those things. And that's a lot of stuff. And for me, that was always the reason to make architecture was that you, it, it's a kind of, it's an opportunity, a very special opportunity to engage in a very deep way with very specific situations that nonetheless relate to much wider cultural issues. You know, for me, the reason to make architecture is to learn things, mm. um, which is not what all architects say the reason to do architecture is. And when I used to interview first year students at what's now London Met, when I taught first year there, which was a great experience, I remember quite a few of the students, if they had an answer and, you know, why do you want to study architecture? They would say, oh, it's so that I can build something that lasts for beyond when I'm dead on the earth, you know, to build a monument <laughs> to myself, which I always thought, my God, that's really, a scary answer anyway. Mm. Um, but if one does architecture to learn something, and every project you do learn things, that's for sure, um, that's clear that you can transfer that to the teaching. And I guess for years, you know, my teaching really was about the physical thing, the way in which you could make a project that comes out of uh, kind of a arch architectural historical, but also out of a topographical situation, maybe not so much social, like I didn't concentrate on program that much. And um, that's always been the way I taught. And I guess at the same time as I was starting to feel that what, that simply thinking about forms and the kind of appearance and presence of buildings in, on their sites, when I started to feel that there was a sort of short, shortfall or what's the word uh some uh, a deficit in what that was achieving in the practice as well i felt it even more intensely in the studio with the, with the students and so i've been trying to bring issues like gender specific political issues which are very present in the profession but also at our school actually you know ETH, it's a little bit better now, but there's 33 
professors at ETH and six of them are women, you know, and for a long time, two of them are women. That was ridiculous. And, you know, for as long as I've been there and been on uh, the commissions that choose new professors, I've been saying, well, at least half of the shortlist have to be women. And at first people would look at me like, what am I talking about? And now, of course, it's a regulation, you know, and, and the students and the assistants, there's been a whole discussion about that. So I wanted to engage with that because I really believe it's a problem. Um, uh, you know, real problem in, in the very way that we perceive our environment and the way we deal with each other and the way we make architecture. Um, and I've been trying to bring more and more things that are, you know, small p political. Mm. And that's what the worst thing is about is like, why are you doing this? You know, what are the criteria by which you are, um, are assessing whether the work you're doing is, is valid or not? Um, mm. Yeah. And then this semester, which is a continuation of last semester, we're looking really very specifically at the second wave of modernism in the sixties and seventies and looking at things that were happening in the margins spatially and socially of society. So the squatting scene in London and New York and in Zurich and the incredible um, uh, energy uh, and uh, unusual productivity that came out of these situations where people had removed themselves from the mainstream of capitalism. And, you know, it's exactly like all the free time we have now. You know, and so we have, like in the references and the texts that we're using, Pierre Huyghe, who set up in the 90s this uh, entreprise of, you know, of not doing anything and relying heavily on, um, on Bataille to kind of construct this idea of free time. And also this really great text by Boris Groys called um, The Tyranny of the Project, which I really recommend to you. Mm. Um, I, I could, if you email me, I can send it to you. I have a PDF, fantastic text, which somebody we met last semester on seminar week, uh, Adam Simchik recommended and completely describes the kind of circular rat race that academics and artists are on about making a proposal for a project, defining and even, you know, ex describing the project in the proposal before they've even done the project in order to get the money and then to do the project. And like this ridiculous and inefficient um, and uh, cycle and, and the idea of removing oneself from that to really uh, use, uh, yeah, to, to think in different ways and to value different things. You, know? mm. you mentioned Pierre Huyg. And um, I know that your practice with Peter Sinjin, it's closely aligned with art practice in some ways. And so far as I know, at least when you were starting out, you were looking to what was happening in art um, and what groups of artists were doing to, I guess, galvanize debate and conversation. So the young British artists uh, in the UK, for example, were for you a kind of model, potentially on how architecture could function? We didn't look at the young British artists so much. I mean, although subsequently, you know, some of them have been our clients. Um, but we were very impressed in how they took control of the narrative. You know, they were in a country that had zero 
engagement with and respect for visual culture, and they kind of said, this is impossible. I mean, they were very fortunate to have been taught by a number of fantastic artists and teachers at Goldsmiths, and specifically Goldsmiths, although some of them went to the Slade uh, also. And um, so I think they're the way they operated, the, the way they made themselves relevant, that was an example to it. The way they were a bit iconoclastic as well, mm-hmm. that certainly was an example to us. But the artists we were looking at were older artists, some of them overlapping with the artists I'm looking at with the students, people like Matta Clark and Robert Smithson, um, Sarah, Judd, you know, some typical architect artist. But we were looking at conceptual art and the way in which it, uh, you know, in a really profound and seemingly effective way, engaged with reality, uh, and but held enormous idealism within it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Peter and I went to loads of shows, and we learned, you know, conceptual things from art practice, but also formal things from art practice. Of the contemporary artists, I guess the ones we looked at more were the Dusseldorf School of Photographers, and German artists like Katrina Fritsch, officially Weiss. Um, yeah, but then it's broadened. I mean, we're very interested in art, not just contemporary art. And yeah, so, you know, Pierre Huyg was, he was just sort of starting when we started our practice. And, but he's obviously an incredibly interesting figure whose work is very, very difficult to pin down. Yeah. And that's part of what makes it so interesting, you know? Uh-huh. I find it, especially his work, very intimidating. <laughs> right, yeah. He's, he's very French, he's very intellectual. Um, but actually, in, some, in many ways, it's incredibly generous. Like, if you look at his celebration project, for instance, which our students were looking at, hmm. you know, he's just providing, he's just facilitating a community, uh, this new community. There's some very good videos about the project. Um, uh, he's just facilitating... Uh, them being able to make a mythology for their new community. You know, it's incredibly generous and very, very open. Um, But yeah, some of his work is really... Did you see the show at the Serpentine last year with the the flies? No, I didn't. But I saw there was something on... I was lucky enough to be able to go to Munster a few years ago. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And there was um, a... Uh, kind of abandoned arena. Arena, yeah, that's an amazing project. That he had excavated and turned into this kind of dystopian landscape. Dystopian, but but also kind of a biotrope as well. What does that mean? I mean, I think it was also about allowing animals and flora and fauna to come back. Oh, yeah, It was dystopian and utopian. And he often has those two things in a way. I just want to, so I think it's worth describing it just to people who are listening, because I'm not sure um, how many people will be familiar with him and his work, but this was, um, I guess, a satellite to the Documenta event. And um, he had taken over uh, an arena that had been slated for demolition and um, excavated it, leaving fragments of the, um, the, the kind of concrete slab intact, but then digging down and exposing the... Uh, the dirt and soil below. There were like pools of algae. Yeah. There were fish uh, in tanks yeah. that had been, I think, genetically modified to some degree. There was also a, um, a hive of bees. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it was all about life. And I, yeah. you know, I think the way I read it was it wasn't really dystopian. It was a kind of slightly speeding up of entropy and that hmm. entropy always really uh, in the way nature always declares its uh, its dominance through hmm. entropy, you know. But it wasn't beautiful, you know, and that's the thing that's often unsettling about his work, his, his refusal to uh, conform to kind of aesthetic uh, norms. And, and that makes the work very challenging. And it, it, it yeah, it makes it un, unstable. Um, yeah, he did this show last year in the Serpentine that had this uh, kind of in artificial intelligence thing on these screens, which were insect-like, but they weren't necessarily insects. And then there was this community of flies living in the Serpentine and they were everywhere and they were in the bookshop. And I went a few times, it was in the summer, so it was rather hot and it was really unpleasant. These mm. bloody flies were everywhere. And, you know, a lot of them were dead and, mm. uh, but they were, you know, re replenishing themselves. And yeah, there was nothing great. There was nothing beautiful about it, but it made you think and, and it was unsettling, you know, and there was, it really felt, there was something substantial in the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really interested in what's the architectural equivalent to what he's doing, you know, and I don't know that there is one, but a kind of very formally indistinct, conceptually quite profound and also consistent. I think there's certain lines in his work. Mm. Also a practice which is not, uh, not relying on novelty. It's kind of very connected to the history of ideas in the 20th century, also formal things, I think. He's a very smart guy, mm. very interesting. A real artist, artist. I mean, I have artist friends who really look at what he's doing because it's, it's challenging. There's always something challenging in it. Um, it's really interesting to hear you say that you are looking for the architectural equivalent of work like Pierre Huyghe's, which to me, his work is so... Um, radical and so uncomfortable uh, and provocative in a way that I've been wondering more and more now if architecture can ever be. <laughs> um, and I mean, some might think that uh, the architecture of Caruso Sinjin is actually quite um, institutional in a way and correct and adheres to a, a quite strict uh, understanding of what is and isn't permissible um, in terms of um, design, ornamentation, structure. There's a kind of responsibility that I, I feel when uh, I hear you talk about your work, when I look at your buildings. Uh, there's something very proper about them. So I wonder if you could talk more about how you see the buildings that Caruso Sinjin make in relation to this kind of radical art practice that you're drawn to. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a gap, you know, I mean, we've always made some projects which are very conceptual and you're not kind of reliant on formal things. Uh, I'm trying to think of any of them built. I mean, projects which weren't built like the depot, for instance, in, Cardiff, which is an old project, uh, it was a competition, we won it, and then we worked for a year on it. And, you know, the competition was to make this really quite beautiful Victorian tram station into an art 
a visual arts center. Um, and our, our competition entry was to do nothing, was to take the capital funding and use it as revenue funding, that the architects would be part of an editorial board and that we would do the minimum that was required to support a five-year program of, ex of exhibitions. And we did a lot of work. There was, I didn't know about them, but a really interesting contemporary art scene in Cardiff. And then it didn't go anywhere. The politicians were incapable of um, imagining the project. But it was very interesting to do. And we've drawn on that project for other projects. Mm. But yes, of course, we've been in, very interested in form and in construction. But I would say, you know, a project like Walsall, it does all sorts of things that are about propriety and representation, mm -hmm. etc. But then it also does very subversive things. You know, it undermines those things. Um, even the sh profile of the building, it's not, it's, it's imperfect, it's broken. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a way of, opening the building up to its surroundings, which are on the one hand quite sublime, but on the other hand, socially kind of very difficult, you know, mm -hmm. this post-industrial black country um, um, setting. I guess too. Or, you know, the Museum of Childhood is sort of classical facade, but a facade where you never see the thickness of anything. So it's like a photograph. And mm -hmm. so I think we're always playing with uh, architectural, the language of architecture and the means of making architecture, but we're also quite often interested in subverting those things, if only to give them an energy and a presence, because I don't think you can just, you know, remake historic buildings in a historic way and expect them to have any power. I don't think good architects have ever done that. I think that maybe the, the point where the architecture could come, could become provocative or upsetting or start to um, unsettle in the way that maybe an art practice achieves is through projects like the Tate Britain refurbishment, which for me is like a very, it's a very weird project. And you've talked about vulgarity in the past in other interviews you've given and how like Caruso Sinjin as a practice isn't interested in, in, in cultivating a sense of good taste that instead uh, <laughs> you're trying to too easy it's too easy uh, and to me that project um the tape written renovation it's it's a very vulgar project in some ways there's something very i don't know i almost want to say like perverted <laughs> about it and if we focus maybe on the staircase in particular which i think is a feature that a lot of people listening would be more familiar with. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a new spiral staircase that was added to an existing court of the building. Yeah. And there are these, the, the materials that are used include, is it chrome and frosted glass? <laughs> Translucent glass. Translucent and glass. Frosted glass. Um, and mirror polished, mirror polished stainless steel. Okay. Terrazzo. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's like a really decadent combination of materials that you don't often expect to see together. Um, yeah. And then there's this fish scale pattern radiating out from the center. And it's meticulously executed. The craftsmanship is impeccable. But 
Yeah, there's just something very, like, I guess almost disturbing about it, but it almost flies under the radar at the same time. Yeah. And, and that I'm sure a lot of people who... State. Sorry? I think it's always been there, you know? Exactly. Yeah, it could have always <laughs> been there, but at the same time, it um, it feels like this perversion of convention in a way. And uh, that, to me, is what's so exciting about it. Um, I wonder if maybe you could talk more about what why vulgarity is important to you in architecture? Yeah, I mean, that's a good, you know, it's a good question. Um, I mean, that's there. There was a lot of pressure from funders and even from the client to just make a glass balustrade on the Piano Nobile because you wouldn't see it, which of course you would. And then it, it conforms to the kind of new old trope and uh, we re resisted that a lot, although the stair does have glass. Um, and, you know, we're in the middle of the rotunda of the late Victorian, almost Edwardian original Tate. We're making a hole in this middle of the floor, which classically is incredibly incorrect, that we couldn't find any precedent for putting a stair there. The, Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna by Zemper has a hole, but it's much smaller in proportion to the rotunda, but it doesn't have a stair. But the reason we were doing the stair was very programmatic. It was a way of, at the main entrance of the building, understanding that this was over, you know, 120 years, it become a building that isn't only on the Piano Nobile, but is on the Piano Nobile and on a lower ground floor and on an upper floor, which we were making public against. So this stair really was a, a programmatic connection between the two main levels and, uh, and a kind of a, a, a clue about the fact that it's a multi-story building now. And it really works that way, you know. Um, uh, but so we said we wouldn't do a glass stair. So we had to do a stair which somehow and, you know, Tate Britain's not a great building. And that's part of the success of Tate Britain. It means that making exhibitions, installing the permanent collection, those things have always been able to take primacy in the life of the building. And it's actually the fact that the original architecture isn't that great probably makes it a better museum. But, and, and so when we were renovating the galleries, we just tried to make them the best version of what they originally were. Probably a slightly better version than the original, but just making the original things better. Uh, cleaning them up, etc., and a lot of servicing things. But in the stair, you know, that's really a rhetorical piece that we're making. It's functional, but it's also symbolic. And and if we weren't going to do a glass stair, we wanted to do something which actually resonates with this late Victorian, yeah, not of the highest quality architecture. So we, in a way, we wanted to do a similar thing to the galleries. We want to intensify the qualities that the existing architecture had. So we took formal themes like the fish scale, which appears in various versions in the building already. It's a kind of, it's a Roman bath motif. It's very, very common in late 19th century buildings. But in the end, what we did was sort of, it's quite art deco, mm -hmm. a, a type of architecture, which uh, until five years ago, I always thought I hated. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I realized actually art deco is what is modern architecture in Britain. Britain doesn't have modernism. 
it does have Art Deco, you know, by people like um, Goodhart Rendell and um, Tate and I can't remember, people like that. Holden, Joe Ass, all of those people were in a way Art Deco, sort of a, a very stripped classicism. And interestingly, Penelope Curtis, who was our client, who's the director of Tate Britain, her her period, the, the period she did her PhD on is French uh, sculpture from the beginning of the 20th century. So when we would have discussions about Art Deco, she said, well, why don't you like Art Deco? What's wrong with Art Deco? And mm. she's a very smart and compelling person. So it made me think. And <laughs> actually, most of the buildings I really like from the, you know, first decade or two or three decades of uh, in Britain are, you could say, are Art Deco. They're certainly not modernist. I mean, the modernist buildings in Britain are on the whole by expats and they're pretty weak with a few exceptions. So that's what we were doing. And Deco is about decadence. It's about vulgarity. It's about, you know, putting precious materials together. And so we tried to do a stair, which has a lot of glass, but where the glass feels load bearing. And we, we had, there's a few things by Fa Wagner we were looking at, not necessarily, glass, but if you think about things in the post office savings bank, there are things where aluminium, glass, marble come together. Mm. So we were looking at things like that. But it definitely was, a, you know, and Sam Caswell spent five years working on that stair, as well as other things. But, mm -hmm. you know, five years, and it cost a lot of money, that stair. Mm. But the client agreed with us. It had to be, you know, perfect. <laughs> it uh -huh. had to be, it couldn't be, you know, 50%. So we had a good budget for it. It's funny, I'm just remembering, um, so an interview that Liza Fiora did with you yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. Peter for the most recent El Croquis. Yeah. Um, and she pushes you a bit on stairs <laughs> because um, in, in addition to this stair, there's also the one um, for Damien Hurst's gallery yeah, or the several stairs. <laughs> Which are also uh, feats of engineering, incredibly yeah. costly, these kind of fetishized objects in the building. Only two people could make them in the world, yeah. <laughs> and there's a kind of heroic quality to that, or there's something kind of almost stereotypically architectural about it. Yeah. And so when I'm, when I'm thinking of stairs in your buildings, but then I also think of you describing projects like the one in Cardiff where you're actually reallocating uh, all the resources towards almost administrative pro processes, invisible processes. Um, there's a kind of funny binary there uh, where I think maybe the outside world would associate your practice more with the, the fetishized objects of um, meticulous craftsmanship. But actually it sounds like there is this aspiration to um, to re use resources differently or to, to think about design more in terms of systems, social systems, as much as um, formal objects? Yeah. I mean, from the beginning, we've always talked about, you know, you should reuse a building unless there's a compelling reason not to. That working on existing buildings is, you know, no less interesting than working on new buildings. And in a way, you know, we had to say that to keep sane because most of the projects we had for a long time 
were modifications of existing buildings, but we really did believe that you could make projects in existing buildings that were every bit as, if not more radical than a new building, you know, because you have this, this material and this spatial and social constellation already there to react to. And so any intervention you make can be that much more powerful, you know, than working somewhere where you've demolished something and you're putting something completely uh, different in its place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also something that we got from artists, you know, uh, late 60s, early 70s artists like Sarah and Matta Clark and Smithson and people like that who, you know, really were trying to articulate something about the environment with, uh, with, in which they were working and the materials that were at hand or the materials that they weren't at hand, but they brought into those situations in order to charge them. All of those things are you know, available to the architect, I think. We definitely do have a stream of projects which are much more conceptual. And at the moment, there's more of them, you know, because I'm getting, I'm, I have less and less faith in an elevation as a, as a kind of powerful instrument, you know. In some places, it clearly is still very important, but there's many situations where we find ourselves doing buildings or doing competitions where, that isn't the case. And so you have to find other things which are potent instruments, you know, so the plan becomes more interesting or, or, you know, sustainability finally in some places like in Switzerland is unavoidable now, you know, you need to do gray energy calculations in every competition. And so, and the, and the, the way structures are calculated have been changed so that timber becomes possible for almost everything, which has its own, issues but so everything is being changed and i think one can't just resist that and or say that has no effect on the form of architecture one tries to engage with it you know Mm -hmm. i'm curious about how you engage with those issues especially issues around uh, sustainability or environmentalism uh, and what you see the potential in design to be and and like even ornamentation, things like that. I feel like I don't want to have a conversation right now about um, energy efficiency necessarily, but I want to have a conversation about aesthetics and their relationship to uh, contemporary concerns about our relationship to the natural world. And I just wonder if th- that's those are ideas that you as a practice are grappling with as well. I mean, I think we are but you know i think that it should be almost impossible to demolish buildings i mean it's almost too late but you know it's ridiculous what's happened in london in terms of demolition the arbitrariness of demolition Mm. um and in switzerland the same thing is happening now and you know it's like why is it happening now like if they resisted it for until two or three years ago, why couldn't they just continue resisting it until it's clear that we should just be keeping buildings, you know, using the embodied energy that is in buildings and then actually adapting programs to allow you to find ways of using, say, very deep office buildings for other uses. Um, And there's a lot of rigidity, you know. So you can use timber. A lot of people are making timber buildings now in Switzerland, but 
you know, the regulations about shadow and acoustics are still ridiculously restrictive, you know, real rich country problems. And they're very, very restrictive in some cases. Like, I know why they're there, but on the other hand, there's situations where they just, they mean you have to demolish the building because it won't, uh, you won't be able to make it uh, conform to these regulations, which, you know, are over, they're, they're too important. Same in Germany. You know, but no politician's ever gonna stand up in parliament and say, let's get rid of the acoustic, uh, the, the, the noise regulations, you know? Mm -hmm. that, um, I'm not asking the question, that's not about the form. <laughs> I don't know what the form is. You know, there was a whole movement 20 years ago when the high-tech architects in Britain were really environmentally responsive and there was a whole formalism that came out of that. But we, we knew at the time and we know now that it had nothing to do with, you know, they were building lots of buildings using steel and aluminium and whatever you know mm. so it was a completely stylistic movement mm -hmm. um, maybe this is an opportunity to talk about hopkins yeah sure <laughs> yeah so it was actually in a very profound way uh, responding to i think at a conceptual level and at a practical level environmental things yes yeah, so, yes so just to set the stage for people who aren't familiar, this is the um, the fourth in a series of books that uh, you and your partner Helen Thomas have um, co-edited on uh, figures in architecture who maybe stand outside of the modern canon, but were still instrumental in, I guess, developing uh, other modernisms. So the first was Fernand Pouillon. You've written also about uh, Esnago Vendor, Rudolf Schwartz, and then Hopkins, yeah. uh, Michael and Patty Hopkins were the most recent architects. And the first British architects actually to be included in this yeah. series. Um, and of course, Hopkins was um, a key protagonist in the high-tech movement, um, which as you say, has its ties to sustainability or is interested in the performance of buildings but also the aesthetics of performance i guess yeah, yeah. um so why why look at hopkins well because um i was i've always been interested in those that period of hopkins's work i tried to get a job with him then i didn't manage his work <laughs> Arab associates, but I knew people working there. Uh, he's very well known in Britain, but has the kind of critique of his work is always uh, kind of in the title, high tech comes to town. So it was always like, he's high tech, but then when he moved to the center of the city, he put on his pinstripe suit, uh, which is clearly not true because when Richard Rogers or Norman Foster came to the city, they continued to do the same thing just in a denser way than they would do outside of the city. So there was clearly something about Hopkins that was interested in responding to situations. Also, he did heavy masonry buildings which were not in the city at the same time. So that was one thing is that I think the critique of his work is like much uh, writing about British architecture, is rather impoverished. Uh, he's just been grouped 
in this high-tech title, and it's a kind of very positivist uh, historiography, you know, which uh, comes from Rainer Banham, you know, through the AA, Hopkins, uh, Foster Hopkins. It's like this story that we all know. Um, although it's interesting in the Hopkins, uh, their oeuvre complet, and there's three volumes now, in the first volume, which Colin Davis, who's a big high-techer, edited. I used to teach with him at North London. Um, but somebody decided to invite um, um, Patrick Hodgkinson to write a piece, which actually, who's not a high-tech architect, and does write in quite an interesting way about the Englishness and the relation to um, arts and crafts in Hopkins's work. So that's interesting. They also invited um, Jenks to write in that first book, a slightly less interesting article. So they were aware of something. But the other thing was that nobody outside of Britain is aware of that Hopkins work. They're aware of his high-tech work, of Schlumberger as the ultimate high-tech building, but then they're not aware of that work. And actually in the mid-80s when these buildings were being done, and the, the buildings in the book are, the first one is Lords, and the last one is a new parliamentary building. So it's a group of five or six buildings that really were designed from the, in the 80s, mid 80s to mid 90s. Uh, and they're all heavy, they all use masonry. And there are lots of Germans who were at Hopkins's at that time who came because of Schlumberger and they were, then they were put on these buildings that were brick or stone and they really hated it. Mm. Uh, and uh, Reem Almanai, who wrote one of the pieces in the book, the one about, um, Lords, she went to visit some of these German architects and they, they, they still were complaining about it. So that was interesting. Mm. But the other thing is, so Hopkins was known as the ultimate high-tech architect, but this other work has, you know, nobody knows about it on the continent. And, and in the context of the other books we did, of these figures who were, in terms of the mainstream, a bit marginal, but in terms of their professional uh, status and their productivity as architects, you know, very important. All of, you know, Pouillon, Schwartz, Asnago Bender, they all built a lot. They were all builders. And Hopkins was also a builder. He built so much, so many significant buildings in the 80s and 90s. So it was these two things. It was about re-making a new critique of that work within the context of Britain, second half of the 20th century Britain. But it was also about um, putting that work out within the context of the other three architects in the books, but in terms of a more European idea of practice. And so Helen and I wrote the main, main text of the book. Um, and then we invited uh, five European, mostly younger European architects to write building descriptions of the five buildings. Mm. Um, so even the way the authorship was handled in the book also was trying to register this double reading. How could you reread Hopkins within the English context? And how could you read for the first time this work within a European context? Mm -hmm. And within a European, con a, a new generation, uh, European uh, architectural culture. Mm. And, you know, we did the book and it was uh, hard work because 
we had to write all of it, but it was also very satisfying. It was an opportunity to revisit things that were, uh, which we lived through. So that's really interesting, you know. Um, we talked to Michael and Patty once only. It's not autobiographical. None of the books are autobiographical, so that wasn't the point. But it was interesting to talk to them. Um, but it was amazing to re-engage with the 80s, with uh, Thatcherism, postmodernism, all of those things. Uh, but also, and my, my piece is about that, kind of trying to, in a way, reframe the, the post-war uh, history of, of, of architecture in Britain. Mm. But it was also really great to show these young architects these Hopkins buildings and to talk about it. The building them. It's funny that because I read the essay you wrote, uh, constructing history, it's called, um, and it was a it was a strange journey for me to follow, <laughs> um, because you start by, I guess, putting in parallel two buildings that were uh, completed around the same time. One is Ventura Scott Brown's. Sainsbury Wing extension for the National Gallery, which was finished in 1991. And then you look at the Bracken House by Hopkins uh, across from St. Paul's, which was completed in 92. And I guess you're trying to situate um, Hopkins in relation to uh, more dominant um, kind of practices of postmodern architecture. And then you're also trying to understand the relationship between English culture and modernity, or I guess just modernism in general. And it, it gives you the chance to look at groups that are coming out of a kind of blander, um, safer um, kind of modernism that maybe originated in places like Sweden and were exported to the UK and part of the kind of post-war social housing movement. Um, and so you're looking at the independent group, people like Palazzi, the Smithsons, Rainer Bannum, Nigel Henderson, as this kind of, as these kinds of agitators who are pushing back at that. Um, and I guess, I mean, that's when I start to feel excited when I'm learning about uh, these histories of opposition to the dominant narratives, um, in this case of architecture. And I wonder in, in like writing these books or, or researching for them um, and uncovering these kind of minor histories of modernism, where you start to situate yourself or your practice in relation. And do you see yourself as a kind of um, agitator as well um, in kind of taking part in this process of, of uncovering or exposing these minor figures. Also, apologies, by the way, there's some construction work going down below me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quiet. Uh -huh. yeah, of course, I identify, um, I mean, what you just briefly described, I mean, the independent group, they were the agitators, but then they became the kind of hegemonic, they became the establishment in a way. Although some people like the Smithsons, although everybody knew them, it was almost that familiarity bred contempt and 
you know, to know them was to hate them, and it didn't help them that much. Uh-huh. Um, Sorry, I'm just gonna like Bannon, you know, Bannon. You know, I, to me, it's I, I don't understand his fame or how he managed to. People found him credible, but he, you know, every two years he'd have a different position and he'd write a book about it, and uh, and yet. You know, for him, it clearly was a springboard. And people like Richard Hamilton were great artists. You know, there's some people who emerged from that group who were really amazing. Although very kind of accepted in the mainstream, but like for the last 20 years of his life, didn't really have a lot of shows and have a gallery until the very end. But a great, great artist whose work, if you look at it now, it it anticipates everything that happened at the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century. And a real artist, artist for sure, a really good writer, uh, interesting in many, many ways. So, um, but of course, Peter and I have always defined ourselves in opposition to high tech, in opposition to neo-modernism then. Uh, We talked about how great Venturi Scott Brown was when nobody would talk about them in Britain uh, and Rossi and people like that. we said those things because we believed them, but we also knew that it would annoy people. So, you know, it was done for that reason as well. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm temperamentally an iconoclast. <laughs> it's funny, though, because this this project is, it's in part like a taste-making project in a way. I would hope it's more than that, you know, because I'm not a, you know, taste. We talked about vulgarity. I know, yeah. There's nothing easier than having good taste, you know, and and it's certainly not about style, which is the way that Britain and Britain things are still discussed, you know, which is meaningless and incredibly destructive. Mm. You know, by talking about architecture stylistically, you render it impotent, you know, and... uh, yeah. Um, I just so, think it's, I mean, for me, it's really pleasurable to read these books because I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's an act of connoisseurship at play where you invite in uh, fellow architects to uh, come and appreciate the work of essentially their forebears. The drawings are always impeccable and like things to really relish. Um, the photography architects absolutely that's the idea Mm. they're also you know although I'm a professor and Helen has a PhD but you know we're both especially Helen incredibly uh, aware of the the problems of academia and the way academic writing research is often just for this tiny coterie of people who read each other's work and it has nothing to do with practice okay but it has nothing to do with even architecture as a receptacle for meaning and for culture and actually the books that we're doing are really trying to say that the built environment is something which is economic programmatic but it's also this incredible artifact which holds culture and meaning you know and and um and by taking these architects who are not in the mainstream who have not been uh, mythologized and who haven't written their own mythologies, you know, like most of the famous architects have, there's a little bit more space to construct uh, a story which is true to the work, but also which uh, maybe has more relevance to today. You know, this idea that... that uh, Sorry, I'm just going to... 
I have to run soon. downstairs. I'm going to ask the, my neighbor to stop hammering. I'm going to take just okay. 10 more minutes, uh, by the way, yeah. for the interview. Hold on one second. So I know you can't stop work, but I'm just doing an interview upstairs. Is it okay if you stop hammering for just 15 minutes? No problem. Great, thank yeah. you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Right. Okay, sorry about that. Just the realities of working from your bedroom. Um, so there's a kind of democratizing ambition with these publications is what you're getting at? It's about, you know, like I, I'm a great believer in connoisseurship, so I don't mind the word, but it also in English has a bit of a hint of dilettantism also, which I hate. So <laughs> I don't, you know, we are the first two books, you know, you have Lacan and Chinotsuki, you know, the experts on the architects who've written these major, major texts for books that they did in French and Italian. Those are the core of the books. And so we're making available incredible pieces of scholarship, both by architects, you know, Lacan and Chino Suki, they're both architects, so that's interesting. Obviously, Jacques is more of a teacher than a builder, but Chino's both. And um, so, but they're incredible pieces of scholarship. But, but we're trying to frame that, you know, in a way where the buildings, the practice, the situation of the practice, those are the, those are the things we're looking at. So that's why we always keep completely away from biography. You know, the conflation of biography in the building, it's, it's a disaster. Hmm. And, uh, and it's, such a, it's so easy and it's so prevalent, you know, like that's mm -hmm. what's interesting. It's not hmm. interesting. Um, that reminds me of um, a kind of caution that my English profs would always give, not to what they call um, submit to the effective fallacy. <laughs> Or actually, no, so rather to commit to the effective fallacy. So instead of reading work biographically and trying to uh, draw correlations between an author's lived experience and the work they do, to try and remove yourself completely from biography and only approach the work on its terms. Um, yeah, because it's not, you know, the guy, the person who wrote it might be horrible or, you know, and sometimes they're so horrible it's problematic, but you know, if the work is amazing, it's, it, you know, you don't, it's the thing that's out there in the world. It's the thing that's in the world. And with architecture, it's even more the case because architecture is physically part of the real world, you know. Tony Fretton, he used to talk about it, it was very powerful. He said he, he can't imagine a worse nightmare than having a symmetrical relationship with his work, you know, and I completely agree with that. Mm. But But, of course, that's the, 
path of the successful architecture is to have that sim symmetry, you know. Mm -hmm. What between the narrative of one's life and the narrative of the work. one's work, yeah. Zaha Hadid and her work, you know, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. the same thing. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, as a way of ending, we could talk about um, interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, so your background is in art history. And, I mean, it's clear that you approach architecture as a kind of um, project of interpretation in terms of using architecture to help you understand um, contemporary life and what it means to live under the conditions we're living in now. Architecture becomes a tool for, I guess, commentary on um, how we are <laughs> or who we are. Um, and, and like you're so active in the, the intellectual life of architecture, both through your teaching at ETH and your, your, uh, these publications uh, that we were just discussing. Um, and what it brings me back to is a quote um, that I read to you before by the, um, the German sculptor Katrina Fritsch, um, which you had... I guess you'd used in a presentation you and Peter gave in 1998 uh, at the AA. I, I highly recommend everyone who's listening to to go online and watch it. It's it's surreal <laughs> to see younger versions of yourselves um, standing up and um, holding court, essentially, and just seeing how little, in some ways, has changed. And I was telling you this before, there's a kind of palpable excitement and enthusiasm that um, hasn't diminished over time. And it's also funny to see figures at the end asking questions like um, Uranus Scalber, for example, pipes up at the end, a much younger version of himself, as does um, Ellis Woodman. And I think for me, there's a kind of, uh, I get a real sense of happiness to see this burgeoning community uh, within architecture in London, um, kind of at the outset, uh, in, in the 90s kind of in conversation and to, just to see how it's played out today. But I guess the, the point is this quote, right, from Katrina Fritsch that you were reading out. Um, and to me, it starts to uh, underscore the friction, I think, between um, the aspiration of the architect to have the work speak on its own terms and the aspiration of the, um, I guess, the critic or the art historian to interpret and lay on meaning to the object. And so here's the quote. Why does everything have to come back to concepts? Being disturbed visually, experiencing ambivalence. Why does one have to go straight into the language cage? It's just an escape into didacticism. A very important element in my work is that you come in, experience an image, allow yourself to be drawn in, perceive it directly. And then, so that's the end of the quote. And then what you were saying in response to that is that as soon as you describe something with language, as soon as you try to explain it away in a text, somehow you put it in a drawer. And um, it's this compulsion that's not just among critics, but amongst our consuming society generally, that um, there is a discomfort if you can't locate art or in this case, architecture. Um, and the way you locate art is by writing about it. And so to me, there's obviously like a real conflict there 
because you're doing so much work in locating architecture through these writing projects. But at the same time, there's a real wariness around the fallibility of text and of language generally. Um, and I don't know, is that something you struggle with? Because, I mean, some architects don't write at all. Yeah, many don't. And, um, but, you know, the language that Fritch is talking about isn't necessarily from, I mean, maybe it is from the critic, but it isn't necessarily from the critic. It can be from the artists themselves. And it's talking about uh, making art, which is not, uh, not about semiotics, but it's about syntax, you know, that you construct the art, but you don't, it doesn't symbolize things. It's not, it's not just a symbol for something else, for a concept. It's not a cipher for a concept. It is what it is. And uh, the reason we use that quote in those days, and it's still a good quote, although I'm not so keen on her work anymore, but uh, <laughs> um, is that we were really interested in the syntax of architecture, like how you would make a brick wall, how you'd make an opening in a brick wall, etc., etc. So all of the things that you need to make architecture. And we believe that the syntax of architecture held within it the culture of architecture, that it's some of the culture of architecture. And the reason we concentrate on that rather than the semiotics of architecture, the, what it symbolizes is that we didn't believe so much anymore in a shared language. You know, the, uh, you know, the idea of in the 15th or 14th century of people going into a Gothic cathedral and everybody understanding what they were seeing, you know, or in the 18th century or 17th century going into a Jesuit counter-reformation church and having the fear of God put into you, you know, and, and staying on the straight and narrow. Like though in those times, architecture could work with semiotics to, to speak, you know, to, to, to speak symbolically. And, what I'm interested in is architecture, which still has power and still has meaning, but the meaning isn't reliant on these very uh, homogenous and privileged knowledge uh, sets of knowledge, you know, because we live in a heterogeneous, in a, in a society that's diverse, globalized, all of those things. And I'm trying to find positive ways of engaging with those things. Music is incredible today in how much it seems to benefit from cross-pollinization. But that's maybe because for the whole of the 20th century, the I think the most important kind of form of music, jazz, was already a kind of hybrid of three different origins of music, you know? And, um, and the books are the same thing, you know? That's what I was saying, that by not talking to a tiny academic audience using the language of academia what we're trying to do is we're trying to make the art of the buildings that we're discussing alive we're trying to have make a book which where you have the photographs the drawings different texts by different people so there's a helen puts it this way that's it's an it's a, a an ensemble of material and then you get the book and then you can also make your own interpretation of the work, that we're giving you enough material and the material is deep and substantial enough that you can then, in your own mind, make your own Hopkins or your own Pouillon, and then you start to contribute to the discourse. Because that's 
that's the kind of condition of a rich, vital discourse. You know, it has to have depth and it has to have breadth. It can't just be three people talking to each other in a bullshit language. You know, so the, the, the books, in the same way as our buildings are, they're trying to resist a certain, you know, hegemonic way of doing discourse. And, you know, there's less and less really written about buildings. Like Alan Calhoun was a brilliant writer of not very long essays about buildings and about architecture. Really amazing. And Frampton's written a few things, but there's so few people, you know, uh, who, and especially now, and, and it's a problem in art as well now, you know, because it's, yeah, it's all part of the, where we are, you know, and the role of, of uh, critical narratives and things like that. I don't want to go on about it. <laughs> it's still possible. There's nothing, there's nothing stopping you from looking at things carefully, and there's nothing stopping you from trying to describe what you see and from trying to explain what it means to you, you know, uh, on the basis of a kind of uh, slightly wider cultural context, a context that's just beyond you as the individual. Mm. Um, yeah. All right. I think we have to end it here. <laughs> yeah, Adam, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, fun. You've been listening to Scaffold. If you like this project and want to support it, head on over to patreon.com forward slash scaffold, where for the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can help this podcast thrive. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash scaffold. And thanks so much to those who've already chipped in. It really means a lot. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Adam Caruso and to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.